It's time to play like a jet with your host, Scott Mason. Play like a jet. What does that mean? Here's Donald. Carry it out. Deep ball. Separation. Caught. Robbie Anderson. Goodbye. Touchdown, Jets. The whole NFL is watching. A fourth and ten. And here they come. Make this pass. It's intercepted by Mosley. Moving on down the top. Bell breaks a tackle. Looking downfield, fires this one, and intercepted at the 34. Jamal Adams goes down on the ground and takes it away. He'll hit immediately. He got the handoff. You know and that's <laughs> the Q-inator. Oh, my gosh. Listen, thank you. From the Vivid Seats Studios, get up to 100 bucks off on your very first purchase when you download the Vivid Seats mobile app. This is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at Play Like a Jet one and it's time for part two of the bi-week mega mailbag. And for that, of course, as always, we bring in the owner, the operator, the lead reporter, the whole shebang over at JetsInsider.com. And above all of that, a very big deal, Mr. Chris Nimbly. So let's jump right back into the mailbag. And our next question is from Ryan Dillon. He says, should the Jets just lean into rebuilding? This year was a big shock for most because of the big free agent acquisitions. But there's so many fundamental areas of need with Darnold still young. This team could build around him, or should they keep trying to patch the holes? So, Ryan, what I would say here is that it's got to be a combination of the two because there's no way that Joe Douglas is going to be able to fix everything in one offseason. But they obviously have to rebuild in key areas. They're going to need to bring in new players in the secondary. They're going to need to bring in new players on the offensive line. They're going to need to get a new edge rusher or maybe two new edge rushers. They're going to need to go out and get a playmaker at wide receiver. Not all of these things are going to be able to be done over the course of one offseason. So what Joe Douglas is going to have to do is do his best to get as many long-term answers as he can through the draft or through some trades. And then after that, he's going to have to patch the holes with short-term fixes just to hold the fort until he's able to get a long-term answer. The problem is that Mike McCagnin was always plugging up those holes and never finding long-term answers, and that's why the Jets are where they are right now. Mike Tannenbaum did the same thing. John Idzik wasn't here long enough to really show you exactly what he was going to do, but what it seemed like is that he wanted to completely rebuild this team from the ground up. He just wasn't good at doing that. He had the right plan, just the wrong execution. So Joe Douglas, you hope, is somebody that recognizes that he's going to have to rebuild from the ground up in a lot of spots, plug some holes just to hold down the fort for the time being until he can find long-term answers there. But as he goes along, find long-term answers at these key spots over the next two to three years. Yeah, you know, the rebuilding idea in theory, again, it's it's a great idea in theory, but again, the the major important thing has to be what do you have in Darnold and what do you have in Gase? And then uh, you have to play the season out and, you know, let, let's see what Nate Harrison does the rest of the way. Because if he played like he uh, the rest of the season like he did against the Browns, then that's one less cornerback spot you have to worry about. Um, you know, instead of – and Brian Poole's been really good too. So you, you, you feel good about the nickel spot and you could feel good about one of the spots. And then all of a sudden they only need one – desperately need one corner on the outside. Um, so you, there's still things you have to look out there. 
Um, and now, again, obviously, for the rebuilding purpose, getting a, a top one or three pick would be best because you could trade back and get a haul. But you need to find out what there is in Darnold and Gase and then and then the other players, like I just said, Harrison, I'm there. But that, that has to be the most important thing because if you're rebuilding around a quarterback uh, uh, with a quarterback and a coach that you don't really know about and then you go ahead and you load up the roster but then those aren't the guys, then that's going to end up being a problem too and that roster gets wasted. So it, there, there is a balance there, but you, the most important thing is finding out about Gase and Darnold and then the other players there. And just, you know, like you said, you gotta, you're going to have to look for some long-term answers in the draft and free agency. And then there's going to have to be some stop gaps there to hold over until the next year of free agency in the draft as well. Um, and again, the idea of just going for the rebuilds is great in theory, but it, if you don't know for certain about the quarterback and the coach and how they work together – then you you can't do that. So and they they need to go out and then also there's now they had the really tough stretch to start the season with the schedule and it gets a lot easier. So there is the danger that all of a sudden we're looking at how they play against you know the Miamis and a, a lot of the lesser teams and then we end up kind of overrating how they play because they looked great against these bad teams. There is some of that danger as well. But you re- you can't – right now, in the middle of the season with Darnold coming back, you can't be thinking and focusing on rebuild. You have to look and see what you have. And then at the end of the season, you can look and see who played well, who played great, who played bad, and who needs to go and who needs to stay. Next question comes in from Daniel Acosta. He says, what could the Jets realistically get in a Leonard Williams trade and who would even be interested at this point? Okay, so Leonard Williams is kind of an interesting topic here. Because he's still very young, he had a good rookie year, and everybody knows that he's got a load of potential, I think that there would be a significant number of teams who'd be interested. The question is, what would they be willing to give up, especially since Leonard Williams is about to become a free agent? The answer to this is really unpredictable. It could be a really cold market where he could only draw something like a fourth-round pick. It could be something like Dante Fowler, or you could have a situation like what happened with the Dallas Cowboys trading a first-round pick for, an at that point, underachieving Amari Cooper. You just never know what the market's going to shape up to be. All it takes is that one team to step up and make a really strong offer. I would say that the absolute best-case scenario is some crazy team offers you a second-rounder. I think the more likely scenario at this point is that you end up getting a fourth, maybe a fourth that could turn into a third based on some sort of provision in the deal. But I do think they could get something for him. How significant it ends up being depends on what the market looks like and what the needs are of the teams that are in the market for a player at his position. Yeah, the, the the tricky part about it is there's probably like about a third of the league that you ha- you would eliminate from the discussion right off the bat. That that they're they're not going to make a trade for somebody like Leonard Williams at this point in the season because this season isn't uh you know they're not making a Super Bowl run or anything like this. You'd you'd most likely have to be looking at a team that thinks that they can make the Super Bowl, or uh, you could look at 
you know, a team that knows that they're going to be bad and might want to try to get a jump on getting a player like him. Dante Fowler was traded for a 2019 third round pick and a 2020 fifth round pick. And if you remember around the league, the view of Dante Fowler was uh, he was much closer to a, a bust looked at that way than Leonard Williams is. So of course the thing the the, the worst part about this is the team that would be ideal and that I think would do this if they needed it would be the Rams. They've shown themselves to be this type of aggressive. Another team like that is, uh, you know, Philadelphia. The Eagles have shown themselves to be that type of aggressive. Um, the, the Rams don't need the help, so the, I'm sure that – and they have a bunch of uh, contract issues they're going to have to deal with in the offseason, so I don't see them getting involved. But if they were to have, like, an injury up front on the offensive li- uh, defensive line – that would probably be the best. And again, if Dante Fowler got a third and a fifth, then I don't see why Leonard Williams couldn't get a third and a fifth. There's there's going to be people out there that look at Leonard Williams and think they can get more out of him. There's definitely going to be. It's just a question of if that team then feels like we need to do this move now. And the the only reason they're going to feel like that is because we want to make a Super Bowl run this year or, hey, we think we can get this guy to help us immediately, and then he will uh, will be able to get first crack at re-signing him and help us get a jump start on free agency last uh, next year. So, I I don't I do think it would be possible, but it's it's always tough in the middle of the season to get these trades, and it's it's unlikely, but it's it's possible. Next question comes in from Joe Placente. He says. Do you change your opinion on the Jets' playoff chances if they rattle off two wins against Philly and Dallas? Yeah, I think you'd have to. If they win those two games and all of a sudden now, instead of being 0-5, they're 2-3 and and they've got a really easy schedule the rest of the way after the Patriots. So yeah, if Sam Darnold comes back, he plays great, and the Jets rebound, the offensive line is looking better, and all of a sudden they're 2-3, and of course you would change your expectations. Yeah, I mean, the key there is if you beat the Cowboys, that that would change the expectations for me because the Cowboys look really good. Um, they have a really good defense. That uh, Dak Prescott and that offense looks really good. That that team looks like Super Bowl caliber material right now. Um, and if they can go ahead and get two in a row beating the, the Eagles and then the Cowboys, then obviously you're going to assume that they're going to drop the, the game to – the Patriots, but then you're sitting there at two and four and then they play the Jags and then the schedule gets much easier with really just the Ravens being the, the only one that's really tough and daunting. Uh, you got two games against uh, the dolphins, you get the bills again. Uh, so there, there's a lot there. Then you can start think think talking about it, thinking about it. I'd still most likely say that it, that would uh, reset us to the position of where, okay, maybe they can rally back and be close at the end of the season, you know, where those last couple games might actually mean something, but they'd probably still fall short. But, uh, but yeah, if, if, if they beat both the Eagles and the Cowboys, then, then that'll get the excitement back. While sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress. And that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill. 
They operated a full-service bar with 50 employees and were always exhausted. They tried all kinds of products, but they didn't work. Then they started experimenting with CBD. They loved the effects and regained control of their days and nights, but they wanted better CBD products. So what they did for themselves was specially formulate CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that were super consumable, easy to take on the go, and effective. Long story short, their specially formulated CBD products and vitamins helped relieve the overwhelming angst they felt on a daily basis. So in July 2017, they named the company Sunday Scaries and began sharing their products with friends and launched their online store at sundayscaries.com. With tens of thousands of customers, monthly subscribers, and a 100% money-back guarantee, Sunday Scaries has always been on a mission to transform a worrisome nation into a chill one. And right now, we have a bonus for you. Get 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Again, 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Hey guys, Greg Peterson here with the Baseball Betting Podcast. As we know, the MLB season is back in our lives. It's going to be a 60-game sprint unlike anything that we've ever seen before. And I'm going to be giving you picks every single day, seven days a week with Major League Baseball. We're also going to be keeping up with the KBO as well. If you like baseball and you like being able to make some money, subscribe to the Baseball Betting Podcast with Greg Peterson on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. Next question comes in from Sebastian Strunk. He says, gentlemen, I've been thinking about this, and I still can't come up with an answer. Do you have any idea what in the world Dowell Loggins actually does? I think Dowell Loggins is here to basically comfort Adam Gase and help him get peace of mind, to be honest with you. He's sort of his guy to lean on, but Gase is the one that does all the heavy lifting. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Jeff Weeks. If you don't know who Jeff Weeks is, go back and read Collision Low Crossers by Nicholas Dowadoff. He talks all about Jeff Weeks. Jeff Weeks was a friend of Rex and Rob Ryan's going back to the college days, and every time Rex Ryan got a job, he took Jeff Weeks with him. Now, that caused problems with a lot of coaching staffs because Jeff Weeks was a guy who, all due respect to him, I'm sure he's a lovely guy, was not known to be a very hard worker, wasn't somebody that had a deep base of knowledge the way that a lot of these other coaches did. In fact, there were jokes in the book about how he would leave on a Friday the weekend of a game and go see a movie at 5 o'clock instead of staying behind to check out film and go through game plans and such. But Rex wanted him there because it helped him have peace of mind. He wanted that one guy that he knew that no matter what was going to be loyal to him that he could lean on. And I think that's probably the role that Dowell Loggins plays, if we're being honest about it. What Dowell does is a lot of, he does a lot of the legwork for Gase, uh, especially with Gase having to do, you know, focus. We, kn- we know he's the offensive coach, but he is the head coach. So he has to do a little bit more. And um, Dowell does a lot of the legwork where breaking down other teams' films and doing a lot of that type of stuff, coming up, drawing up game plans, he is with him as they uh, come up with the game plans and going through the film. And he he's really like a soundboard to bounce things off of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and to give his input on certain things. And then Gase can, you know, overrule or go with it. Um, but that, that's what happens when you got have an offensive coach uh, as the head coach, or even when you have a defensive coach as the head coach, it's just on the other side of the ball. Um, so, yeah, he's not, you know, he's not implementing a bunch of stuff all, all completely on his own. 
but he's he's just really there to be like a soundboard and help uh, Adam Gase. Adam Gase will say, go do this and do that. And then he is also there to talk because he's, he's the offensive coordinator slash quarterbacks coach. So he does a lot of the day-to-day stuff with the quarterbacks. Um, so he relays a bunch of information from Gase to the quarterbacks and from the quarterbacks to Gase. Um, he's kind of a middleman in a, in a sense on lots of ways. He's a loyal foot soldier that Gase knows he can trust. Yes. Next question comes in from Rich Feldman. He says, and you talked about this earlier, Chris, but we'll expand upon it now. We rightly blame the underperforming offensive line, to say the least, for bad quarterback play and a bad offense in general. But can it also be said that bad quarterback play can make a subpar offensive line look worse? Certainly that's the case. And you said before that a good quarterback can make a bad offensive line look not as bad as it actually is. Same thing here, because if you have a quarterback, say, who holds the ball way too long and gets sacked a ton, then all of a sudden, oh, the offensive line, they're not protecting this guy. Meanwhile, they gave him enough time to throw and he's just holding the ball too long and being indecisive. There are a lot of different ways that this can play out. But yes, absolutely. A bad quarterback can make an underperforming offensive line look worse. Yeah, I here's this is going to sound kind of crazy, but a gore, good quarterback, a, a, a potentially great quarterback can make the offensive line look worse than it is as well. And you look at someone like Deshaun Watson. As great as Deshaun Watson is, at times he makes his offensive line look worse because he will hold on to the ball too much. He will move around too much at times while he's waiting for the big play. And uh, the Texans by no means have a good offensive line I'm not saying that but there are a lot of times when I'm not so sure how much of the offensive line was the problem and how much of it was hey they held up for a good five seconds but all of a sudden at eight and nine seconds he's still holding on to the ball trying to make a big play so and I think that will happen with Sam as well Sam Sam will fall into that trap every once in a while um so yeah it can definitely work out that way um but it's a huge emphasis and it's talked about a lot getting rid of the football in the as quick as possible in this league because it's impossible for these offensive linemen to to block these defensive linemen for too long so quarterbacks can get themselves into a lot of trouble holding on to the ball too long and it's not just bad quarterbacks to do that really good quarterbacks can do that as well russell wilson's another guy that i can think of that does that as well at times where it can be a little bit frustrating andrew luck uh, as much as uh, we've, we've all talked about how the colts ruined him and uh they gave you know, now they have a great offensive line, but for most of his career, they had one of the worst. He would still hold on to the ball way too long, and he, a lot of the damage he got was because of that simple factor. So, it, it again, it's just there's so many moving parts, uh, and this is the thing that it's easy to grade a cornerback when you're looking at a one-on-one matchup there. It's hard to grade an offensive line when you're talking about five people, five and a half if you include the tight end, and then maybe the running back, and then we'll add into what the quarterback's doing. There's just so many moving parts, it gets really hard to figure out. 
Next question comes in from the Iceman King Parsons cousin, Michael Parsons, overseas in the UK. He says, I'm from Britain, so I don't understand the argument around the Jets not actually being a New York team or the idea that Buffalo is the only real New York team. Can you help me understand what people are arguing here and your views on it? Because as somebody from Britain, I don't understand this. Here's what it boils down to, Michael. Very simple. The Jets and the Giants are called the New York Jets and the New York Giants. The Giants used to play at the Polo Grounds, and the Jets used to play at Shea Stadium. Neither of those stadiums exist anymore, but the point is, back in 1983, the Jets and Giants moved into a new stadium in New Jersey, and so while they still technically represent New York, they play their home games in New Jersey. Buffalo is in upstate New York. They play all of their home games except for the occasional games in the past where they would do them in Toronto in Buffalo, which is upstate New York. Therefore, technically, Buffalo is the only team that both represents the state of New York and plays all of its home games in New York. So that's why people in Buffalo will say that Buffalo is the only real New York team. Obviously, the Jets and Giants still represent New York, even though they play in New Jersey, but that's where all of this stems from. So now, hopefully, you understand this a little bit better. Yeah, and, and if you don't, let me clear it up even more. It's stupid. <laughs> Everything about it, when people, oh, it's all stupid. I mean, the San Francisco 49ers play in Santa Clara, not in San Francisco anymore. There's a lot of teams that play, that have the name of a city and they play right outside of that city. Uh, I guess you can make the argument that it's a little different because it's a name of a state and they play outside of the state. But also typically people tend to, outside of New York and New Jersey, tend to think of New York as just New York City. It's almost like New York State doesn't even exist to people outside of mm -hmm. this area. It's just New York City. And the Jets and the Giants are both much closer to New York City. But it's stupid. Who cares? Like, we all know what it is. Yes, the Jets and the Giants play in New Jersey. The Bills technically play in New York, though it's four hours away from New York City. It, it's just... I don't – why – this is just what it is. Sometimes we do stupid things in sports, and sometimes we say uh, – call things a certain way. They've always been the New York Jets and the New York Giants. Do you really need them to make – change it to New Jersey Jets and New Jersey Giants? It's just – it. the whole thing, it, the whole argument, whatever about it, it's all just stupid. And I'm sure, like – you know, and the the soccer teams out there in England, I'm sure there's some teams that play just outside the city that they're actually called. Um, but you probably don't make as much a big a deal about it as, as people do here because people here want to argue and point out little meaningless things and make it into a big deal. But it's all just – it's pointless. It's pointless. We all know what it is. They play in New Jersey, but they're associated with New York City. That it, That's it. We just accept it. Why do we have to rehash this all the time? Hey guys, this is Greg Peterson, host of the podcast Hooping with Hoops. Despite the fact that college basketball is in the offseason, it's never too early to get a jump start on taking a look at these teams because there is now 357 of them for the upcoming 2020-2021 college basketball season. I'm going to give you guys a deep dive on every last one of them, keep up with all the transfers in college basketball, and so much more. You are able to subscribe to Hooping with Hoops on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. 
Next question comes in from G Tucker one 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 five. He says, "Do you think Gase is dialing back his play calling like it's preseason because of all the injuries and not wanting to show what the offense will be like until the team is at full strength?" I just feel like there's no sense in opening this offense up knowing the situation. No, I don't think he's doing that. I think he was being especially conservative because he had Trevor Simeon and Luke Falk, and then he may have even done that to an extent with Darnold week one because he knew that Darnold was sick. That I can't tell you for sure, but I'm pretty sure that that's what he was doing with Luke Falk and Trevor Simeon. There's no way that any NFL head coach is going to treat regular season games like they're the preseason because these games matter. They get judged on them, and they've got to do everything they can to win these games. So they're not going to say, oh, we're going to hide this or we're going to save this for a different point in the season when our players are healthy. They've got to win every single week. So, no, I don't think that's what Gase is doing. Yeah, that's not what he's doing. I do think that there's some uh, uh, some of that due to, like you said, uh, Trevor Simeon and Luke Falk. My thing is then there uh, we'll try something different and aggressive that you wouldn't normally do anyway with those guys. Try to come up with some stuff uh, that could throw a wrench in the opposing defensive game plans that they're not ready for and different with them. And then when Darnold comes back and every other people and Herndon comes back, then you could go back into what you want to do with your system. So not having or having Trevor Simeon and Luke Falk is not an excuse to me to just continue being conservative. I can understand why you don't want to open up your playbook and put that things on tape, but it's your job as a coach to go in and try to come up. Again, this is, I say this all the time, but Belichick, this is what he does best. He coaches week to week. It's not even year to year. It's week to week. He looks at the opponent, the opponents that he's facing, the talent that he has, and he will completely flip his game plan and then scrap it the next week. And so you look at, okay, we're going to be a little, little limited in what we normally like to do with Luke Falk and Trevor Simeon here. Let's come up with some new things, some new wrinkles that we can use just with we, these guys to try to, you know, come up with some uh, creative stuff uh, to get to be able to move the ball and to still be aggressive while not doing it. We haven't seen that. I I would expect that it would change once Darnold comes back, but I, you know, you need to see it. You you need to see some creativity. You can't just keep going with the conservative play it safe approach. You need to actually try to win these games. I said a little bit of this with Matt Stavlikoski on the post-game report on Monday morning, but I feel like I'm somewhere in the middle on the people that want to run Gase out of town based on these first three games and the people that are making a million excuses for him. I think it's not entirely fair to evaluate him based on this three-game sample size when he hasn't had Darnold, and obviously he was sold as the guy that was going to bring Darnold to the next level, and that was a big part of why he was brought in. So I have to give him a little bit of a pass on it. However, there's still no excuse for the production that has been put up, even with a third-string quarterback. And like you said, Chris, at least try to win. There were times during these games, in fact, against the Patriots, they're down 20 to nothing, and on a third and nine, he's throwing a behind-the-line screen pass to Robbie Anderson. You can't do that. You have to at least try to win. So I think that Gase deserves more time for us to really evaluate what he is 
as Jets head coach. And yes, obviously you take his pass in Miami into account, but also you can only evaluate the job that he does here because if you're going to evaluate him based on what he did in Miami, you might as well not have hired him in the first place. You evaluate the job that he does with the New York Jets. Yes, his past can weigh into your head in terms of realizing what he is and what he isn't if he learned from his mistakes in Miami when the season is over. But I think you've got to give him a few more weeks and then you can start to really judge what he's been as the head coach, as a play caller, so on and so forth. Certainly, he has not done a very good job so far, no question question, but the excuses are somewhat legit. So I think you've got to go in the middle on that. I'm not going to crucify Gates for this, and I'm also not going to make a million excuses for him. But let's see how this plays out over the next couple of weeks and then throughout the rest of the season. You know, I've been critical of Gates over these last couple of weeks, and people are mistaking it. It's like if you're criticizing him about something, it means that I, I want him fired right now or I'm saying he should be fired right now. And I, I had a tweet about this earlier in the week. I was like, listen, I can, you can criticize a coach without it meaning fire the coach. Uh, like, Because I agree with what you just said. It is unfair for us to sit here and just put a final judgment on Gase after these three games with the, the roster that he has, the injuries that he's had to deal with, obviously. But if, if I can't ju- uh, cr- like critique what he's done with this group, then what are we doing at all? I might as well just uh, go in hiding until they get everything right because you have to be able to still criticize and still say things. Uh, you brought out the, the pass behind the line to Robbie Anderson. There was the third and nine draw. There was the late in the game when they were actually got down to 16 points and they had, it was, there was only two and a half minutes left in the game, but it was a fourth and two and they punted the ball away. Like, okay, why, why do that? Like, yes, they were, they were extremely unlikely to win, but at punting the ball away is just admitting defeat at that point, at least take the chance. Yes. They were backed up in their own uh, red zone, but so what? So you risk the Patriots scoring another touchdown and then the Patriots cover? Like, the third and nine draw was absurd. <laughs> There's just too many times in this game, in these past two games, where Gase just seemed content to just say, eh, we'll, we'll get him the next drive. We'll get him the drive after that. And, like, the Patriots had a third and 22, and Tom Brady went and threw a 28-yard pass to Josh Gordon for a first down. They punched it in and scored a touchdown. Obviously, Tom Brady's a different beast than, Tom, than Luke Falk, but you can't beat Tom Brady by playing it conservative because the Patriots will convert third and 22s. So you have to take chances, and I'm going to criticize that again. That doesn't mean that I'm saying that he should be fired. I'm not trying to like wet that whistle and get it ready. I'm just pointing out that you can't expect to beat teams in the NFL by playing it conservative like this, no matter who your quarterback is. I thought it was funny after Luke Falk threw the interception and then a couple of people were like, see, this is why Gase wasn't throwing so much. And my response was, fine, I'd rather the interception because better to go down in flames than death by a thousand paper cuts. You got to at least fight and go down fighting than just lay down like that. So, yeah, obviously, 
I'm with you. I don't think Gase has done a very good job so far, but I also don't think that it's fair to come to any broad sweeping conclusions about him as a coach just based on these three weeks. Give him a few more weeks. Give him a little bit more time. Let's see what he does. And then we can more properly evaluate the job that he's done with the New York Jets. And like you, I was very skeptical of the Gase hire to begin with. So it's not exactly like I'm somebody that's a Gase apologist by any stretch. Like I said, I'm in the middle on this. I think that he deserves his fair share of criticism, but I do think that some of the criticism has gone way overboard. That's going to wrap up part two of the mailbag. We will be back with part three tomorrow. In the meantime, go ahead and follow Chris on Twitter at CNimbly and at Jets Insider. Follow his deputy editor, the president of the Calvin Anderson fan club, Alan Schechter, at Alan underscore S-C-H-E-C-H-T-E-R. Read Chris's very big deal work over at JetsInsider.com. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and TurnOnTheJets.com.